This is part two of a two-part series. And on this part, we are talking to Alex, uh, 737 pilot. Welcome, Alex. Hello, Alex. Hey, how are y'all doing today? All right, how are you? Not bad. Hey, welcome to our podcast. Nice to meet you. You as well. Glad to be here talking to you from Leipzig, Germany today out here. It's morning for us and evening for Alex, and our schedules, thankfully, just happen to line up for a day. A heads up, we'll be talking about mental illness, suicide, mass murder, and suicidal ideation, which may be difficult for some listeners. Please use discretion when listening. If you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And Alex and I have more history than just interviews on a podcast. There's me and Alex riding in my airplane and I turned the gas off at night at like oh 3,000 feet. <laughs> That's bad. I don't know a lot about airplanes, but that doesn't sound Made for good. for great IPC, yeah. It's not. I mean... <laughs> and i yeah so yeah we were doing like an instrument proficiency check so i had the hood on so it's like i'm blindfolded flying at night and we're coming into my home airport like three thousand feet and we're not gonna glide there we're not gonna make it and i just turned the gas off accidentally and it dies (laughs) so it was that well, I'm yeah. not flying Luckily, with you. We fixed it fast enough that he didn't even, uh, we didn't even know what happened before we fixed it again. <laughs> yeah, I think the log <laughs> said we lost like 10 feet, so we were all right. Mm-hmm. So the China flight, MU5735, seemed to lose altitude, but then at some point, it briefly leveled off and started to climb again, then plunged again. And they seem to almost have recovered from the dive at about 7,000 feet, but the same issue happened again and then the final plunge occurred. So basically the first descent from 29,000 feet to 9,000 feet, uh, from what I've read in the press, people are saying that it looked rapid but controlled somehow, like something one could do if they experienced a sudden loss in cabin pressure and you'd want to descend fast so that the passengers don't die of hypoxia. But the second plunge is that something we can explain. I mean, what do you think happened with this plane? Was it an intentional downing based on what we know so far? First of all, I got to say that I don't have any special knowledge and I'm just, I just know what everybody else knows about this so far. Um, what I've looked at, you know, I, I can't think of anything normal that I would do to, um, to make it look like that descent. Uh, you say it looks like a, in your words, it looks like a controlled descent. Um, I could imagine maybe a 6,000 foot minute descent, a 8,000 foot minute descent, if we're really getting after it, um, maintaining speed controls all the way down. Um, but I think there was something on there that said that was like a 29,000 foot minute descent at one point, and that's just, that's just way beyond what I can conceive as normal. Yeah, I mean, I watched those videos, uh, the video captured by a CCTV camera by a um, mining company. And to me, it seemed that that aircraft plunged nose down like a rock. It didn't even seem at that point, it, it looked like it didn't have wings anymore, stabilizers or the tail. It just looked like a cylinder falling down from the sky. And I guess that's to be expected, the lack of wings and all the outer, you know, elements, because I guess the plane sheds parts when it falls due to the immense aerodynamic forces. But 
what could make a plane fall down at that almost 90 degree angle? You're saying there's not a lot that can cause that. Exactly. So looking through this and, you know, trying to recreate some things in the simulator, um, the simulator only goes to certain parameters and then it turns to a red screen. So there's like, it's not even possible to recreate this scenario in the uh, simulator. They were going oh, so wow. fast um, on the way down that um, we don't know what would happen. The airplane's not tested to those speeds and those, um, those stresses. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was some structural uh, failure on the way down going that fast um, at that incredible rate of descent. Like I said, I, I can't even fathom a reason for me to go down that quickly. Um, so and, and even thinking about some things like an elevator failure or something like that, um, the wings are still producing lift. So I, it still wouldn't be a nose 90 degrees straight down descent. It would be some sort of a... Um, like 45 degree nose down, it would, it would be some other um, attitude other than 90 degrees nose down, at least in my head. It does not look like it's something a plane would normally do. I mean, even if you lose all motors, uh, I guess you they're made to glide in a way, those planes, right? You just can't drop down from the sky like a rock, like that, nose down. Exactly. So... If we lose all power, we still have a procedure for that. You know, we're trying to get the engines restarted, but it's still an airplane. It still glides, um, and we can still make it a significant distance with uh, with two engines. And it, and it wouldn't be a that significant of a descent. Step one: take the hood off. <laughs> Step two: turn the turn the gas back on. <laughs> turn it back the other yes. direction. Undo whatever you just <laughs> yeah. did. Yes. My next question would be, is there any mistake that the pylons could have made, disconnected something by mistake, pressed on a button by mistake? And I mean, is there any anything a pilot could do by mistake, not realizing what they're doing, and then that happens? No, there's nothing I can think of. There's no button that where the wings fall off and the nose just goes straight down. I'm curious in 737 training and just in general training for for bigger airplanes is there a specification in the training for things not specific to that airplane in terms of emergencies in terms of when the call should be made to air traffic control in the steps of declaring an emergency and going through the procedures because that's the big thing that stands out to me in this is no call and no response tells me that whoever was on the other end just did not want to respond. That's a fair point. So um, in aviation, we're taught to ABC, aviate, uh, navigate, communicate. Um, and um, looking at that, in that kind of amazing descent rate, they were still working on the first step, which is aviate. They couldn't um, they couldn't recover the airplane to even be give, give them a couple minutes of time to get that out there's no point in talking to atc if you're diving out of the sky that fast there's nothing they can do for you no it's up to the pilots at that point uh so i, I really don't don't think that uh they had made it this that step that step three in that case yeah i think i remember i saw a documentary because i've been watching a lot of documentaries about 
plane crashes recently, and there was a case of a plane who everybody survived and uh, they landed uh, okay in the end, but they also had an issue where they had to descend really fast. And while they were focusing on that, they did not respond to the calls from the tower control just because they were focused on what they were doing and that would have not helped them in any way. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a that's a normal thing that I would expect. You know, um, we're taught a lot of the times that if we're experiencing an emergency, we might um, we might declare an emergency in a period of low workload, um, and then our instructors will actually intentionally try to um, distract us by giving us commands or something as air traffic control. And our job is to basically tell them to you know be quiet and leave us alone, stand by. Until we come back to them and say, hey, we are ready to receive instruction or, hey, I'm doing this. Make it happen. Because um, in an emergency scenario, you know, you are the number one priority in the sky as soon as you declare that mayday. Um, so in that case, those guys have to listen to you. Um, if you say you're going to land on this runway at, at this time, it's their job to make it happen. Have you ever had to declare? Several times. I've had to declare, I think it's eight times now. Um, wow. Yeah, I've, I've worked at a few companies where, you know, maintenance was a little sketch sometimes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> No, not in, not in an old raggedy cargo plane. Yeah. Tell me that's not true. <laughs> I've worked cargo my whole career and, you know, part 135 companies and everything. And, you know, we, we had some really old 1960s birds that, that had a hard time, you know, with the engines and, and the props and gear and uh, cargo in the back. Uh, in fact, there's a report released earlier today, um, NTSB report from an accident uh, a long time ago or an incident where a, um, a uh, FedEx crew uh, in, a, in a little uh, caravan, the crew was uh, incapacitated because of all the, uh, the uh, um, dry ice on board. And dry ice, you know, when it, when it melts, it doesn't really melt, it sublimates turns into carbon dioxide and you can't breathe carbon dioxide. Wow. So if you're not getting enough fresh air in the airplane, you know, you're going to pass out. And that's exactly what happened. Luckily he was on the ground when he passed out, but, uh, these things happen and you know, it's, uh, it's a dangerous business. Thankfully I've not, I've only had to, I had to report an attitude indicator failure, but it wasn't that big a deal because I had a standby. So that's as close as I ever came was just having to report an attitude failure. Mm -hmm. And in modern aviation, it's, it's really not something that happens um, very often. These airplanes are designed to run constantly, right? Every, these, uh, especially jets are designed to take off and land every three hours or so. So they, um, they are constantly moving and the more they move, the less they really break down. It's, it's kind of amazing how that works. There's a story about a um, turbine engine, turbine engines like basically a jet engine. And it was running at a well at a farmer's house, and it ran straight for 10 years. And uh, Pratt and Whitney went out and pulled it out. And uh, when they when they tore it apart and looked at it, it looked like a brand new engine almost. Now this is why we you know we hear all the time in, in the turbine world, but uh, I'm sure there's some pretty similar to that happened, and I'm I'm pretty sure that's a that's a true story. About the China plane plane crash. I do have another question, of course. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, after they first plunge a little bit, and then they seem to stabilize and even gain a little bit of altitude before that final horrific nose down dive. 
do you think something might have happened in between to where maybe they lost consciousness and then they came back too and they tried to uh, level the plane again? Or, I mean, I, the first time I heard about that, I thought, well, that sounds similar to the situation of the 737 MAX with the MCAS system, you know, where something is pu pushing the nose down and the pilots are trying to get it back up again and then something happens again with the system. But in this case, it was it happened just once. So they plunged, then they stabilized the plane for a little bit and then gained some altitude and then that horrible final plunge happened. You've hit on a few different important points here. So first of all, this was a, uh, in this particular instance, was a 737-800NG airplane. It was not a MAX. Um, and as we know, the MAX has that infamous MCAS system on board, which is basically a automatic system that uh, trims the airplane down on its own. The 800 has something similar, but a much less powerful system uh, called speed trim, that can can trim the nose down a little bit, but it is really for the very beginning stages of takeoff and landing, and it it deactivates itself um, pretty quickly after takeoff. And as far as I know, there have been no issues with the speed trim system uh, itself. So looking at this crash right here, uh, they got out to cruise, they were straight and level, and then they started that amazing descent. And then, as you say, around, I think it was 7,000 feet, they started to recover a little bit and then went right back down. I have been thinking about it and going over it. I still can't think of any rational reason why that would happen. Um, the only thing I can think of maybe is if um, the other pilot on board came back in the cockpit or something along those lines to where he started to pull up and try to recover from that dive before they hit the ground. But that's... That's really the only logical um, scenario that I can think of in that uh, uh, in that situation. I presume that there's an altitude pre-select if the person who programmed the nosedive happened to leave the pre-select on 7,000. Is it possible that the airplane leveled itself off while he was shouting through the door or something and he had to go back and nose it down again? So the autopilot itself would not have done anything near to what this airplane did. Um, like I said, I think it was a 29,000 foot minute descent rate. And that is, that's just, that's just impossible to recreate other than manually, um, manually or if something horrific broke on the airplane. But I, I, I still can't imagine any one, any one failure to cause such an amazing descent rate. Um, so in my head, just what I'm thinking is it was manually pushed down to 90 degrees and it was held there and someone else overpowered it and pulled it back up at 7,000 feet and it was pushed down again. That's the scenario that comes to me in my head. That's, again, just a personal opinion, but that's just, it makes sense, right? If you had a complete power off at, say, 30,000, like, what would be the rate of descent in a controlled glide in a 737-800? If you lost both engines, we've done this a few times, but I can't say I've been staring at the VSI or the vertical uh, situation indicator. I can't. Um, it would be less than 6,000 feet a minute descent. It would be... Okay. You, you would still... You would feel it going down as a passenger, but you would not feel uncomfortable like a roller coaster. You would still, still be feeling like you're sitting in your seat. 
I remember there was uh, in the Silk Air case, they simulated the crash and it was the same thing where uh, the person who was recreating the crash in a simulator said that it was actually really, really hard to obtain a trajectory similar to the one in the in the Silk Air crash. And you, the only way you could do it is only manually. So basically, if it's an intentional downing, there's no other way and no other error on the plane or technical failure that could lead to something like that. I don't want to uh, rule out any sort of like major break that might happen. This this investigation will go on for months. Uh, NTSB has gone out there. Our, the, uh, the American um, crash investigation has gone out there. And uh, I, we can't rule out anything like that, but uh, it just doesn't make sense to me that that would be a reason why it would go down. Yeah, I was going to say, as I mentioned earlier, I watched a lot of documentaries, among which one uh, that showed the case of a British Airways plane and the windshield blew away because the the screws they used the in the maintenance did not fit. Uh, and obviously the cabin was depressurized and the pilot was actually, the captain was sucked out of the plane and a flight attendant was holding him by his feet. He survived and the other co-pilot, the co-pilot uh, landed the plane. And I was wondering maybe something like that could have happened and maybe in this case the pilots lost consciousness could that be something that I don't know? <laughs> so that story that you tell is a uh, is a very famous one that all 737 pilots, and I imagine all other pilots hear all the time about how that window blew open, and it, ha it happens for more than one reason. Like there's um, there's two different layers of the windshield, which is not really important to the story, but uh, windshields break is is the moral of the story there. And it just happens that that was so catastrophic that the guy got sucked out and they ended up landing just fine. Um, the airplane was still flyable is the main point there. The airplane still flew just like normal. And all airplanes are designed to have multiple layers of redundancy. Um, there has to be a chain of events or a chain of failures to cause something to go down, uh, even in the first place. So... This accident here, um, if, if both pilots went unconscious, which has happened in the past, there has been, um, you know, loss of pressurization in the airplane, which means that uh, instead of the pressurized to, say, an 8,000-foot altitude like um, like Denver, top of mountain kind of thing, which normally is, it was pressurized to 38,000 or 30,000, wherever they were at, and you can't stay awake. You, you lose consciousness at that altitude. Um, so if they were to lose consciousness, the autopilot would still keep flying. Um, it would still keep flying based on whatever they had programmed in, which would, in this case, would be a straight level, um, flight to the destination. And it would have just kept going from there. It wouldn't have done any sort of major descent. It wouldn't have descended at all, uh, really until it, um, until it lost, lost fuel. And even then when it lost fuel, it would have glided down. And I mean, Alex is an instructor and I think, you know, you mentioned you were flying with a student the other day. So I know you still, you still teach in smaller airplanes as well. And that's how he and I met was I needed somebody to go ride with me while I did an instrument check, uh, proficiency check. And my experience in flying airplanes is the first mistake is usually free. And the second mistake is sketchy. And the third mistake, you're in trouble. It's a great way of putting it. 
maybe I was also thinking, could there have been a freak weather event, like a microburst, even though we do know the weather was, based on all reports, perfectly fine and beautiful? There are some some different weather phenomena, like uh, clear air turbulence, cat clear air turbulence, where in the middle of nowhere you'll suddenly get this severe turbulence, but... Um, you would you would see that in the flight recording before uh, it went down. It wouldn't be the first hit that even if it was so such a major hit, it wouldn't be the first one that caused everything to fail and just fall out of the sky. You would see some up and down. You would see turbulence, you know, like you've experienced before. And then a microburst that happens there. Thunderstorms. It's like when you turn on your faucet in the sink and the, all the water goes down out of the faucet. Same thing happens with air. Um, and it's what's happened to the uh, the Delta crash in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, they had a microburst. Um, but it hasn't happened that far up. And it, um, and even then, it would only be 15, 20 seconds, and then it would be a recover, and it wouldn't have been that drastic of a descent. So even then, I can't imagine how those would work out uh, in, this, in, in this way. It just doesn't make sense. I have heard online some chatter, and this is completely unverified, but I just wanted to ask you, there is talk of a thing called the QACVR recording system. Uh, it's something that the Chinese, the Communist Party has apparently introduced uh, in all the cockpits on all planes in their fleet to monitor all the conversations taking place in the cabin. And the QACVR apparently stands for Recording System for Real-Time Transmission. And apparently every, like they, they'd store the cloud data and they listen to the storage on the ground. I mean, that's what some people are saying online. Now, obviously, communist regimes and in general, they do like to have control and to listen to everything. That's a given. But have you heard anything about this? Do you think this is... Something because I'm thinking this could, if you work in an environment where, you know, every word you say is monitored, that can totally lead to really high stressful conditions at work, right? Like nobody wants to be under Big Brother's eye. Definitely. Um, you talk about the QA, the Chinese version. Um, I'm not aware of that version. However, um, I do know of the FAA's version. We have uh, what we what we call a tattletale system on board. Um, there are two different sides of it, uh, and they're recorded in the black boxes, which are actually orange in the very back of the airplane. Um, there's two sides. The first side is a is a microphone that's actually in the cockpit, and it picks up all the conversations going on um, from the very minute it takes off all the way to when the recording ends. And it's just a loopy recording that deletes itself every, I think it's 120 minutes or something. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about that, but uh, it deletes itself as it uh, keeps recording until it stops. The other side of it is a um, what we call the tattletale system, um, and it records every single motion the aircraft is doing. So if you push the nose down, it records that. If you push a button on the autopilot, it records that. There's like a thousand ninety different uh, parameters that it records at all times. Um, so when you when you do these, look at these recordings and these um, these crash investigations, they'll show like an animation or something. These those, these are just recreations of 
the black box recordings, the 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 recording and the airplane uh, system recording through the entire flight. Uh, all it's doing is recreating what what was recorded there. So it's something that exists. It's not just a um, communist thing that they're watching out for them. Um, we do the same thing. Um, it is very stressful, but our unions and airlines have done a very good job of protecting that data such that I don't think about it when I fly. Um, the only way they can get into that data is if there was a major accident and it cannot be used punitively, if that makes sense. So um, if there is an incident like a um, you go off the runway on a landing, and but nobody's hurt or anything, they can't base that recording to judge your punishment off of, if that makes sense. That brings something else to mind. I got, I got one here. With that in mind, my impression of the Chinese, um, based on the Max situation, which we talked about in part one of this uh, episode series, uh, in which the Chinese were the first ones to ground it, uh, I also recall a situation where a mechanic, uh, another 7 Series Boeing, I don't remember exactly which model, had installed some replacement bolts, I believe, in the leading edge wing flaps uh, with the washers in the wrong order, and it didn't, it didn't hit a limit, and it caused a fuel leak, and the fuel leak turned into a fire, and it burned an entire airplane to the ground. Nobody got hurt in that case, but the Chinese seemed like they were forthcoming about all of it, and they turned it into a a sort of training scenario that the FAA still uses. So based on those two, I have the impression that the Chinese have done a pretty good job of being forthcoming and open about safety issues. And I'm curious, Alex, since you have flown in China quite a bit, what is your opinion of like the aviation infrastructure and procedures and things like that in China versus the U.S.? So China versus the U.S., um, they have a pretty good safety culture. They um, they send all their pilots to be trained in the U.S. Um, they go through a like basically a college type program here, and they're sent back to fly the line um, at a Chinese airline. And they are very strict in their procedures. They um, to me they're kind of robotic. They um, are assigned exactly what they need to do at all times and they follow. Whereas in the U S there's more leeway, you know, there's more, um, descendant power discretion, that kind of thing. Whereas in China, it's not that way. And if you make a mistake in China, um, it's a strike. And if you have too many strikes, you're not allowed to fly in Chinese airspace anymore. So they are very, very strict about their safety culture and, and how they, and how they perceive what you're doing. Um, beyond that, I don't know too much more about it. I don't know how open or closed off they are to the FAA and to the world stage about um, accident history, incident history. Um, I, I have no idea and no way to figure that out. So I just know based on my experience that uh, Chinese pilots are very are trained to do things exactly on procedure and not deviate at all. And they uh, uh, they fit into this very strict aviation regime. 
another thing that comes to mind along those same lines is it seems to me that, you know, all of us that learned in the U.S., that grew up in the U.S., we mostly learned to fly at very old municipal airports where things are just broken all the time. You know, like you can expect the localizer to be out at Podunk Municipal Airport when you get there and you can expect that, you know, the runway lights might not work and stuff like that. Is the fact that civilian aviation is so much newer in China, uh, do you find that, uh, you know, as far as serviceability of ground equipment and stuff like that, is better there because they're newer or is there not much difference or is there stuff broken all the time? Like here, you know, what's, what's your opinion of the difference of the two countries? <laughs> so that's an interesting question. So the U S is by far, far and away the largest GA community or G general aviation community. Uh, we have the biggest aviation community of any country anywhere in the world. Um, Looking at China, it is newer and it is far smaller. Um, so for those reasons, I you don't see things that are broken over there very often. You don't see localizers or VORs or basically navigational beacons that are that are out. You don't see major runway closures due to a uh, a failure or something like that. You see planned maintenance that happens continuously just like normal i maybe my experience isn't that good at the other airports but i don't see the same amount of uh, um, maintenance issues over in china that i see over in the u.s yeah and circling back to what you said earlier that the aviation culture in china is much stricter than here in the sense that pilots really have to follow this very um, strict set of guidelines and they can't really uh, do anything other than that because they would get a strike or they would be reprimanded in some way. I mean, I think that's a good thing from one point of view, but then I'm also thinking if I put myself in the pilot's shoes, then that's a very stressful work environment also to not be able to have even a little bit of leeway on some of the decisions you make while you're flying yeah I, right i mean it's a double edge double sword kind of thing definitely double edged sword and um having not been in that culture i can't really explain how stressful or not stressful it would be if i knew exactly what to do and when and always did it that way i imagine it would make sense to me but um you know, I, it's not something that that I have experienced, so I can't I can't really talk it to it that well. So one of the China crash pilots, uh, Mr. Yang, he was younger. He was 32, and still, based on all reports so far, a very very good pilot. And the co-pilot was 59 years old, and he knew how to fly four different types of Boeing aircraft plus a variety of Russian planes. So. I keep thinking if one of them would have made the mistake, surely as far as experience goes, the other one would have been able to help out and they would have been able to, you know, level the plane and all of that. And also there was a third pilot on board also experienced. So as far as pilots experience in this case, in the China plane crash, I think they're all really good experienced pilots. Yeah. Um, their experience is more than enough. And, um, there's there's no reason that any one of them would have made a mistake to dive the airplane like that. Um, 
that, that I can think of. Just like the mechanical scenario, I can't think of one scenario that would cause it to go down like this. And just like um, power experience-wise, I can't think of a reason why a lack of experience would cause that. Even an inexperienced pilot would should be able to recover um, a start to a dive like that, no problem. The only issue might be overstressing trying to recover, but uh, we didn't see that. At least in the, the recordings we've seen so far and the released images we've seen so far, it doesn't look like um, that was attempted to happen. A follow-up a little bit on that, too. The And this is another thing that we touched on a bit in the first episode of this series, that when the Lion Air and the Ethiopia air flights with uh with mcas trouble went down the rumor that started almost instantly was along the lines of well you know they throw those ethiopian guys in there with a couple of hundred hours and make them first officers and my knee-jerk response to that at the time without knowing any better was that sounds ridiculous i'm guessing that those indonesian and ethiopian guys probably went through the same simulator that everybody flying out of Fort Worth does. So have you seen in other countries, just maybe seeing a guy, you know, in a simulator school, um, much lower time requirements in terms of foreign airlines for somebody to get into a first officer job? Or are they pretty much for the most part, identical to the U.S.? So, great question. Yes. Um, other countries have a, um, a a different time requirement for first officers, and that is 250 hours to fly an airline airplane as a co-pilot. Um, the FAA, the U.S., also had that same requirement up until fairly recently when it was all of a sudden jumped to 1,500 hours. So that's a major jump. And so now our culture has a 1,500-hour requirement for co-pilots, and everybody else in the world has a 250-hour requirement. That doesn't say that they are hired at that point. That just says that they're allowed to be hired by that point. And, I, and both those crashes, the Ethiopian and the um, Lion Air Max crashes, the different airplane, both those pilots, from what I remember, were well above that requirement and had plenty of time in the airplane. So the bigger point that that brings up is the difference of culture between the U.S. and other countries. And there's a prevailing sentiment that uh, the U.S. is very proud of themselves and the U.S. is very happy with our culture and we think we're better than everybody else. Just like in every other subject and everything, the U.S. thinks they're better than everybody else. There's some degree of that because of our aviation culture. You know, we, we talk about how, you know, we were raised in at 16, we were starting to fly gliders, and we fly small airplanes all over the place, the Oshkosh, and all these other different uh, aviation events and communities all around the all around the country. And it's much much a bigger part of our culture here than it is in other places. We have, like I said, we have by far and away the biggest aviation culture of any other country. That being said, our training, especially for the airline side is not really any different than anybody else anywhere else in the world. A few different airline training schedules, such as like Cathay Pacific, which in my opinion uh, is better than the one I went through here in the U.S. So um, especially for airline training, I say that 
other countries are as good, if not better, in some ways than ours are. I have a follow-up a bit on that. In researching those uh, two MCAS crashes that everybody heard about, I was reading the 737 procedures for full automation disconnect. Of course, I'm going by what I can find on the internet because I don't have current manuals. But what I read suggested that the procedure has not changed all that much, even going back to like the 727707 days. It seemed to me from reading the procedures that in a runaway trim situation, it could require both pilots to be present and working on disconnecting everything and leveling off the airplane to get control back. Is that the case? And do you think that the workload and the procedures for taking over hand flying of the airplane, for lack of a better word, in case of some sort of dangerous automation failure is reasonable or is excessive or talk about the workload and what you think of it and how it works. There's a larger point here in that Boeing's philosophy, Boeing's always been known as the pilot's airplane. So 737, when something goes wrong, the Boeing procedure is basically to revert to the most basic level automation or revert to manual flying. And that's no different here. So when something goes wrong with the, say, a runaway trim in this scenario, what we do is turn off the autopilot, all the automation, and then we turn off the entire electric trim all at once. So there's two little switches on the bottom right of the throttle quadrant. Turn them both off at the same time and continue flying from there. Now, in an airline environment, all procedures are designed for a crew environment. That means that one person, their only job is to fly the airplane. Their only job is to keep their mitts on that yoke uh, or the steering wheel and keep that airplane pointed in the correct direction. The other person's job is generally to diagnose the problem, figure out how to fix it, run the checklist, and uh, talk to ATC, talk to control. So that's exactly how it's designed here. So in this memorandum scenario, one person is supposed to grasp firmly, is what it says, the control wheel, um, and disconnect the autopilot while the other person runs the rest of the checklist, you know, turning off the, the trim and, uh, and then manually trimming from there. I'm going to ask you to expand a bit further. And the reason I bring that up is some of these scenarios in the uh, pilot suicide cases, which were not any sort of mechanical or system failure that we're going to talk about in a minute, were cases in which one one or the other uh, pilot had to go to the bathroom, went to go get a drink or whatever, and the first guy locks him out and decides to crash the airplane on purpose. And the reason for asking the first part of this question is the obvious thing that comes to mind is okay if a if an automation failure requires two people to regain control of the airplane and it's okay for one guy to go to the bathroom and leave a flight attendant in there instead in the meantime uh does that is that a concern what is what does the what is the training and what do the procedures say about that scenario so 
that brings up a greater point. These airplanes, 737, 777, etc., were designed prior to 9-11, right? So, and as a re reaction to 9-11, where hijackers were able to enter the cockpit, they installed the secure doors um, to where it's designed that nobody can get in unless the cockpit allows them in. Nobody can get in the cockpit. Um, Not even explosives. Yeah, even if you use explosives, apparently those doors won't budge. They're very strong doors. I, I, yes, they're very strong doors. So... The downside of that has been if a pilot wants to go to the bathroom or the pilot wants to drink or whatever, they have to leave the cockpit. And that wasn't normal back when these airplanes were, were made. There's no door. And my cargo airplanes, I still have no door because there's nobody in there just but us, hopefully. So in that case, they usually bring in a flight attendant or somebody who really is not qualified to fly the airplane. It's just qualified to be there and listen to what the other pilot has to say in an emergency to basically babysit. Um, all they do is they sit there in the, in the chair and they, and, and they watch what's going on until the pilot comes back. So there's, there's really nothing there that, um, that I can say other than, cause I, number one, I haven't experienced it. I've, I'm a cargo pilot and I have been from the beginning. I've never had a secure door on my airplane. I do know that these doors have a keypad on the right side, you know, where you type in a special code and, if there's no response from the cockpit after a minute or so, the door will unlock. However, if the cockpit wants, they can permanently lock that door. They can deny entry after a code is entered. There, There's no way to get in that cockpit from that secure door if the cockpit does not want you to. And that's exactly how it was designed. Downside is, if that single pile left in there doesn't want you to get back in there, there's no way to get in back in there. So... What what is the correct answer? How how do how would an airplane manufacturer address this issue? Um, maybe put a bathroom inside the cockpit in addition to outside the cockpit. You know, all I could think of are major airplane reconfigurations or redesigns to be able to make this a more secure scenario. And what about the workload side of that? Like, is there anything they go through with you guys in type training, saying, okay, you have a scenario where your colleague had to go to the bathroom or went to get a drink and you know, you have an emergency that has a time limit. Um, what do you do? Um, do, do they bring things up like that? And what is, you know, what do they, what do they say about it? Absolutely. So these procedures, um, while they're designed for a crew environment can be completed by one person, any emergency that comes up, any memory item, uh, time-sensitive scenario can be completed by one person. However, they train us also um, if there is a layman in the jump seat or a flight attendant or whatever, they train us to be able to talk through the scenario and tell the other person what to do. Now, um, there is some chance that that person will be so freaked out and won't, you know, look at all these hundreds of switches in the airplane, trying that one switch, and your mind is going to go blank, right? So um, they always do also train us that there is a, you know, you are able to complete this on your own. If the, So the runway trim scenario, we go back to that one. You know, the my hands, right where they always are, can disconnect all the autopilot, auto, automation systems. And then 
within easy one foot arm reach, I can disconnect both those trim switches. The only downside is it would be difficult for me to run the power and manually trim at the same time. So the thrust levers, gas pedal, and manually trim would be difficult. I had to move my, my hand from one back and forth to the other to be able to continually mess with those systems. Could this be some type of new Boeing kind of thing that didn't happen before, but just happened on the the plane, like in the case of the Lion Air and Ethiopian Air, where with the MCAS system, I mean, in the first plane crash there, the Lion Air pilots did not even know the MCAS was on the plane. They had no idea that system existed. In the second case, uh, they had been briefed about it. And apparently in the second case, from what I understand, they actually followed the procedure that Boeing was recommending and still the plane crashed. So could this be some type of new, I don't know, technical, something, uh, a wrong system, a system that was not wired correctly or something, even though from what I understand, the 737-800 is one of the most reliable planes out there and also like the second most popular plane in the world. The 737 is one of the absolute most popular planes in the entire world. It's it, There's thousands of them everywhere all over the world and they have been for a long time the this chinese airplane was a 737-800 next generation airplane and those have been around for decades it's not quite like the max where it's been only around for a year or less than a year these have been around for a significant amount of time and you can't just on an airplane neil knows this as a former airplane owner it is absolutely impossible to willy-nilly change something on an airplane and continue to fly it in a, a commercial fashion. Um, there are so many levels of certification and design and testing process you have to go to make any kind of change that uh, it would just be unfathomable for me to real think that the, um, the airline had changed something on the airplane significant to the systems to make something like this happen. I, I just can't imagine that happening. I went through the field approval process, which for our non-aviation audience is basically a one-off engineering approval to change something on an airplane. And in my case, look, this is a single engine airplane uh, that carries four people, and it was a minor change. We were putting an electric air conditioning system in an airplane that was pretty much what the factory option was. And it was six months and, you know, multiple different engineers, a complete set of drawings, complete schematics. And it still took six months to finally find somebody that was willing to put their signature to it. So I've done it once and never again is my experience. (laughs) (laughs) And in my airline, um, we recently did an upgrade to our computer on the airplane, uh, the FMC, and we changed the color of the font a little bit. And um, this is a thing that Boeing has come up with, uh, makes it more clear to us what what's the next fix is and, uh, and things like that. And that cost so much money and took so much time to implement that it was just it was just unfathomable to me just just to even realize how this small change of changing the color of the font on one line on this fmc 
made such a huge difference. Yeah, and I I actually heard a controller from Miami Center. You know, he had a pretty good grasp of how it all worked, and he said he saw an estimate once that uh, a code change from Lockheed Martin in relation to flight service data averaged out over time to $10,000 per line of code. Wow. So we're in the wrong line of work, man. We need to quit. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Man, I didn't make that kind of money back when I was doing that stuff. Me neither. I'm not making that kind of money now. We're not making any kind of money at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Before we move on with our discussion to part two, where we're going to focus on mental illness in the aviation industry, I want to tell our listeners that we just uploaded a really interesting premium episode about Putin's time in East Germany as a young KGB officer, his work with the Stasi, his connections to terrorist groups and Carlos the Jackal, and lots of cool stuff in there, guys, including a doorknob poisoning, obviously very true KGB style. And if you're looking for something more fun, And if you're into aviation, because we're talking planes here today, you should check out our Fraud Influencers episode. You'll hear about the fake Arab prince, Botox camels, and the swindler pilot who wanted to be an influencer. Both of them got caught mostly because of their social media accounts. Oh, and the Putin episode will have a part two again only for our premium subscribers. So guys, if you're not a premium subscriber yet, and if you want to support us, and hear more of us by getting two extra premium episodes a month, please subscribe on dubiouspot.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. We don't use Patreon, so the signing up subscription process is the easiest in the world. So if you like us, please support us this way as we are an independent podcast. We have no teams of editors, no sound designers, no graphic designers, no researchers. We do this on our own on nights and weekends. So dubiouspot.com, click subscribe and enjoy the premium episodes. Alex, you re- you remember our buddy Theodore Wright, the uh, intentional crash an airplane to try to get the phone case company's attention guy? Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we did. We actually the first uh, yeah the first episode that we did that we put up only for subscription people was about Theodore and a uh, Theodore was half of it, and a fake Saudi prince was the other half. <laughs> what an idiot, man. <laughs> I don't know. I have a soft spot. And Theodore was recently released, and uh, when we started talking about doing that, I thought, let me go check on Beach Talk. He's I bet Theodore's already too. on there. Yeah, as soon as... <laughs> Yeah it's, yeah, it's like two weeks after Theodore was out of jail, he was on Beach Talk, and he was taking a ride with somebody in there. So he's already back. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Good for him, I guess. So moving along, we're going to also talk a bit about the stigma of mental health treatment in the aviation world, as we discussed in part one of this uh, two-episode series. Alex has a very important and very touching story to share with us. And it speaks a lot to why also we chose to discuss mental health in the aviation industry and the way pilots and traffic air traffic controllers are made to feel and the way they have to sometimes hide the truth in order to protect their jobs and their livelihoods. Alex, please tell us your story and why you think talking about mental health in aviation, why is this an important matter to you? Mental health to me has become a huge issue to me, especially in the uh, aviation community, 
back when I started, I, you know, as, as a kid, you don't really have worry about anything. You have your, you know, is my girlfriend going to, you know, want to go out with me tomorrow or is she going to leave me? That kind of thing, <laughs> which may be, you know, the biggest thing in the world then. But, um, you know, in, in the scheme of things, it, yeah. it's, it's tiny, right? So there's not much to worry about in the beginning. But as you go through life, you have your normal grief. You have your your stories, that kind of thing. A while back, I had a bad month where the beginning of the month, um, my coworker, my sim partner, who I worked with very closely, had passed away in a tragic accident. Um, and then later that month, my uh, son died, oh um, newborn son, and uh, my marriage didn't make it that because of that issue. So it's um, <sighs> that was an amazing, amazing moment of grief for me. And um, well, now I'm thinking you know, steps to get past it. And my company was very helpful. Um, and I, you know, didn't fly during that period. It's, it, it's a very big subject. Like, um, if, I mean, if anybody along that, along that, uh, process had diagnosed me with depression or anything like that, um, I would have been permanently grounded, um, or seemingly permanently. There's, there's some ways you can get it back, but like Neil said in the beginning with your a special issuance or whatever, um, it's very, very difficult to reverse um, the FAA's decision on that. Yeah, I I am absolutely, uh, I'm completely saddened and I just want to say how sorry I am. That is a lot. That is more than, you know, we can't even imagine. A lot of people say, oh, I can only imagine. No, you can't. I don't think anybody can imagine what you've been through. And we're so sorry to hear about these tragedies that happened to you, especially losing your son. That is just completely, I don't know, I'm a little shook right now. But I, I'm happy you seem to be doing great. And I'm happy you're willing to talk to us about this, because that's why we feel it's important People forget that pilots are human uh, and they forget that air traffic controllers as well are human. And these people have lives and sometimes tragedy strikes and things happen. And, you know, as humans, we all have issues. There is no adult, I think, that is completely, perfectly, 100% healthy. There is no adult who never had a mild form of depression. There is no adult who never experienced anxiety even for five minutes. You know, there, there, there is no such thing. So... We are very grateful that you are willing to talk to us about this. And I just want to ask at the time when these tragedies happened to you, um, were you able to talk to your uh, employers, to your airline on immediately? Or did you, how did you go about it? What was the process? Were you afraid that you would lose your job? So I talked to my employer immediately. Um, I had a trip scheduled coming up and um, I talked to my employer I just sent him an email um, saying what had happened, and he, he knew that, you know, that she was pregnant and, you know, we were going through these uh, this exciting time. Um, he called me immediately, and he immediately just said, you know, take as much time as you need and call me when you're ready, and we'll talk about it, you know. Um, so he was very supportive. Um, um, so my, my company was very supportive through my director of operations, uh, who, who I talked to in this case, he was, he's a, he's a father. He knew exactly what I was going through. Uh, or if he didn't know, he understood somewhat of what I was going through and he was very supportive. And my company gave me, um, anything I needed. I, I know that if I would have needed more, they would have been more than accommodating. 
that's that's at least uh you know good news if there can be any in that context but that's it's good to hear that you had that support do you think other pilots do you think that's something that usually happens or do you think you were the exception or maybe you know part of a smaller group that uh is lucky enough to you know get this kind of treatment and response that's the question how many pilots go through something similar and then don't or are scared to contact their company and go fly anyway how many companies aren't as accommodating as uh, my DO was? That's a great question. And I've heard from some that have been through this process and their company has required a psych evaluation or has immediately reported this to CAMI, which is basically the, the medical office of the FAA. And their reactions are swift. Um, they will immediately revoke your medical certificate, which means you can't fly, ground you, and they'll require you to get the appropriate evaluation and um, before you can and submit all the data in and then be reviewed after six months by, by the office and then potentially get more evaluations and more documents and wait six to nine more months. And over a process of years and thousands of dollars, you may get back on as a, as a line pilot. That's an important thing I think to emphasize is that, you know, if you are initially denied, then all the burden falls to you. You have to go and prove yourself to the FAA and you have to pay for a doctor to help you with that. It's uh, particularly if you're not, you know, flying professionally, if you're just you know, random Joe like me who has a piece of plastic in his wallet that says I can fly an airplane. Uh, if I get denied, I've got to pay a doctor to help me fight with the FAA, basically. I don't uh, and try to get a special issuance. Um, it's it's a it's a guilty until proven innocent scenario is what it boils down to. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that to me. And also uh, a thing that stands out in this context is that pilots would would have to most likely make the decision of do I tell the truth and well be grounded for potentially years with the um, outcome that I might never be able to fly again or do I just not say anything and well, not lie, but lie by omission, not tell what happened, not say that, you know, I am depressed because it's only normal for somebody who goes through a major tragedy in their lives to be depressed. So this is putting pilots, I think, in a spot of uh, choosing between now I lost the person that's so dear to me. I lost somebody close to me. I am, you know, I am shuddered, but what do I do? Do I tell the truth and lose my job too and my livelihood? I think that's a very hard choice and I don't think anybody should be put in that situation. And that's the where the, this stigma of mental health in the aviation industry comes into place. People feel like they might have um, a target on their backs if they admit to having any kind of sort of medical issue, mental health issue. And that is worrying because if the pilots are not okay, 
and they can't speak the truth, then none of us are okay. It's not what we want. We don't want the people flying the planes uh, feeling that they have to hide the truth in order to be able to continue their careers and basically have a job and, you know, pay their bills. I'm curious, Alex, since uh, I've never been an instructor and you've been a, uh, a general aviation instructor, how many students would you say over the years you have come across that wanted to fly and uh, didn't know that they were going to be medically exempted and just wound up either turned away or just gave up on it because of a medical issue? That's a huge point. So, um, obviously, as an instructor, I am not a doctor, and I don't, um, I don't evaluate my students directly. But I direct them to this form, this MedExpress form the FAA puts out, and um, they go through and fill it out. Um, I don't give advice on how to fill it out. I, I say, you know, talk to your doctor, talk to whoever, and fill it out, you know, appropriately. And um, there are some things in there as you fill out, like if you took ADHD medication or you took beta blockers or something like that, that um, will disqualify you for getting a medical. And most of these students coming in have absolutely no idea. And then there are probably some instructors who know about these things who, who say, you know, don't put you put beta blockers 10 years ago in there. Because it will it will uh, disqualify you probably for your medical. You know, it's been ten years. You're fine. I'm not an authority there, but that's definitely something that comes across. If you took a medication ten years ago, you could still be denied a medical for it, even if it's you know seemingly innocuous, if it's normal. And there's other things like if you have a cortisone shot, for example, like people do in their knee or their back or whatever, and you go. Um, go take your medical, your sugar will pop up really high. Something just like that, where your your blood sugar levels have been normal for years and years and years, you suddenly take this one P-test and it pops really, really high in sugar, they're going to say, oh, you're potentially diabetic. Now, while you can immediately prove that false, it's going to take you years to prove it, um, prove that you're qualified for medical. And past that, CAMI, will review your um, your application even more um, tightly than they did before. So if you're within normal limits, but you are on the lower end of something on your blood test or whatever, they might flag that and say, get more tests on this this um, this in particular. You know, they'll look more specifically into you. Yeah, the thing with the cortisone shot, uh, I actually think I had one of those because of allergies. So some of that stuff is completely uh, innocent, you know, like a pilot could get some kind of steroid shot for allergies, for really bad allergies, and then they end up being potentially grounded over it because the airline thinks they might be diabetic or, you know, not in good health, which is not the case. And then they would have to mm -hmm. spend the time and money and years or at least six months to prove that they are okay to fly. Exactly. But... To, just to be clear, I see the other side of this. You know, obviously we want safe pilots, we want healthy pilots, we want, um, we know about the German Wings incident. We know there's been other accidents similar to that. So back on the mental health side of things, I don't know where to draw the line. Is is the main point? Mental health has become a major issue, really across the, the modern world. 
Um, you see ads on it all the time for, you know, uh, different programs and, and whatever, um, uh, just on normal TV. So it's become a much bigger issue, much wider, uh, publicized issue now, but where do we draw the line? It's, it's, it's just a really difficult question to answer. That is the million dollar question is, yeah, where? And, you know, as we mentioned in the first episode of the series, I, there are legitimate ones. I mean, the, the blood pressure and heart issue things, I think are, they're completely legitimate because, you know, it's, it's a matter of, you know, as one of the scenarios we mentioned in the, uh, in the first half of this interview, you know, if you have a depressurization situation, then, Lack of oxygen is going to affect somebody with heart issues much differently than somebody without. You know, a 22-year-old fighter pilot is going to be much more resistant to a lack of oxygen for a short period of time than a 50-year-old, you know, smoker. It's going to be way different, not just a little different. So those are legitimate things, I think. And there has to be a line. It's a matter of figuring out where that line is. For example, and I quote from the FAA guidelines, certain medical conditions such as psychosis, bipolar disorder, and severe personality disorder automatically disqualify a pilot from obtaining an FAA medical certificate and prohibit them from flying. However, many pilots have conditions that are treatable. Several US airlines already have reporting and monitoring programs that provide the pilot with the path to report their condition, be treated for it, and return to the cockpit once the FAA has determined through a rigorous evaluation it is safe to do so. The FAA addresses the medical certificates of those pilots on a case-by-case basis. I mean, as Alex said, you have to see both sides because where do you draw the line? You cannot have people with severe mental illness uh, conditions, especially ones that cannot be totally kept under control by medication. You don't want those people in charge of 200 lives, right? And also in the case of the German Wings pilot that we discussed in part one of the China plane crash episodes, um, he downed the plane in a murder-suicide and the FAA previous to that forgave the pilot for lying in the official forms about his mental issues and then they gave him a second chance. And I made the case that, look, the FAA is in a tough spot because if they are understanding and they give the pilots another chance and then that pilot downs a plane intentionally and kills hundreds of people, then the FAA are the bad guys. If they don't give the pilots second chances and they ground the pilots with mental health issues, then they're the bad guys. It's a tough spot to be in. And different countries have evaluated this differently. So uh, German Wings, for example, is under the European guidelines, and the FAA has their own, and the Chinese airlines have their own. So in the case of German Wings accidents, that was actually EASA or the European Association that uh, they gave them a pass. But I don't think it's any different to what happens over here in the FAA. From what I see, from what I um, have heard and interpret, if you are diagnosed with depression – from a normal therapist or whatever, at any point, that is a disqualification for your medical certificate. But if you're diagnosed with a grieving disorder, or I don't, I don't know what these terms are, but anything other than depression, you may be passed through the screen. So how does this work where a pilot needs to get therapy or needs to 
talk about an issue they're having where these therapists don't know they're not trained in the FAA system. How do these therapists know how to treat a pilot uh, and how does a pilot trust that they're, and they're, they can talk freely with their therapist and be able to work through these issues without being uh, in jeopardy? Yeah, so it's a matter of trust at the end of the day and the matter of are pilots uh, safe if they admit to having an issue and they, if they seek help? And it seems to me that the answer is no. Probably in most cases, they would prefer to not say anything. And if they seek help, they would do it privately uh, without letting anyone know at the airlines, just because it seems that there is a big likelihood they would lose their jobs and they would be grounded. And that's not okay. I don't think that's okay. I mean, depression is one of the most common mental uh, health issues nowadays. And I think it's worth mentioning in this too, that it's going to be difficult to find a doctor that will work with you in one of these cases. There's not going to be a lot of them. I should say that instead of difficult. Major cities, you're probably going to find one, but there's not going to be a lot of them because you have to consider from the doctor's point of view as well. Uh, the doctors that those of us who have pilot's licenses go to are usually also pilots and they're doing aviation medicals as just sort of in addition to their regular medical practice uh, because they have an attachment to the aviation community. It's not like there are professional aviation uh, medical examiners in every town in the U.S. and you can just find one on every street corner. Major cities, yes, but not everywhere. Uh, it's a matter of a doctor being somehow connected to aviation too. And if you are trying to deal with a doctor that is not involved in aviation, I mean, put yourself in the doctor's shoes. Why am I going to take on this extra liability of me being involved with signing off on a guy who I'm not sure should be doing his job when I'm not even, you know, familiar with this industry. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not something that, it's not something that I signed up for if I'm the doctor. So my knee-jerk response from my personal liability as a doctor is probably say, whoa, wait a minute. You need to talk to somebody else about, you know, the FAA paperwork. I don't want to get into that. That brings up a good point. So a lot of times pilots actually have, especially if they get older and have potentially more things go wrong, they have multiple doctors. So your FAA doctor just evaluates you based on that moment and on a set of criteria. And if that evaluation fails for whatever reason, they have to report it and they have to report it to the FAA. And then that, that comes with own ramifications. So a lot of pilots will have a normal doctor or a primary care physician uh, go to them and see if anything comes up irregular. And if it does, they'll ask questions about it and figure out you know, if, if it's a fluke, like the case of the my friend had his um, his cortisone shot and it caused his sugars to spike. Well, he had no idea that would happen, but his regular doctor did. And he just didn't know he was going to take a pee test the next day. You know, so a lot of pilots will, will go through these these uh, numbers and documents before they take their uh, medical exam. So um, and also you got to realize that pilots take their medical exam. For me, I'm under 40. I take it once a year for an airline medical. If you're over 40, 
you take it every six months. So these evaluations happen a lot. You can't just prepare for it and and go through these documents, make sure that you're doing fine, and then just go past it. It's, it's every six months, so it happens a lot. So it, it's just... Yeah. It, it's a difficult subject. Yeah, it is. And from what I gather, it seems that the regulations on paper and the actual climate in the aviation industry, as far as mental health goes, they are not the same thing. There's one thing on paper and it seems, uh, you know, reasonable. But when you hear about cases of, uh, you know, a cortisone shot that you had to get and then potentially being grounded for a side effect of that, which only lasts for a little while and doesn't really affect your cognitive skills or your uh, mental state at all, that does not seem fair. Also, having a mild depression and not being allowed to fly a plane, that doesn't seem fair as well, because there is very effective treatment nowadays for depression. And depression is not, in my opinion, I'm not a doctor, but it's not a mental condition that is so severe that would jeopardize anybody as long as it's treated, I don't think. So yeah, of course, where do you draw the line? And who's willing to take the risk? That's another thing. Because I don't know. I was going to also ask, what are the differences between the mental health regulations for the European um, countries, maybe Asia, China, and so on, and the US? Because in the German Wings case, that pilot had trained at the Lufthansa school in Arizona, and that's where he lied on the on the documents, on the forms. And that's when the FAA kind of like caught the issue, and they gave him a pass so that he can get his flight license, I guess, and that's how he became a, a Lufthansa plane uh, pilot in Germany. So uh, somehow, I guess, like they're working together, aren't they? Because the FAA had had like a say in that pilot's career, even though he was a German pilot, right? Like he wasn't an American. He was just training here. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries um, send their pilots over here to be trained and then they go back uh, the serve from the airlines there. Um, I do not know the differences um, in medical procedures and evaluations between the different countries, China, Europe, and, uh, and so on. Um, I've only experienced the FAA and I don't have to deal with the FAA. Um, so I can't answer that question very well. But um, um, I can say that we talked about earlier drawing the line. One of my opinions would be that um, the FAA views any kind of medication almost as um, as a deal breaker, you know. So beta blockers, for example, or um, really any kind of um, medication you've been prescribed for a long time. Even if I take a Benadryl, I'm down for something like five days. So um, I think that they can reevaluate their um, their guidelines on medication and um, go through and see, okay, so depression is being treated by this medication and this person has been on it for this many years and they have not had any negative side effects. Um, if that is reasonable, I say that that's, that's totally a, uh, a valid pilot to go fly. Um, if they are just being prescribed for that um, for that medication, and maybe there's a reasonable time period they're down while they're evaluating side effects and um, 
just things of that nature. But um, but I think that that's the first step is medication and treatment um, should not automatically be a yes. reason for yes. denial. That's what I was going to say. I think if the FAA uh, deferred to the medical community, for example, instead of deferring to an individual and that individual's individual doctor, because what that winds up with is you have two people um, without a giant bureaucracy, without an army of employees and without uh, standards and practices on their side, having to basically wrestle with a giant government agency or a giant corporation. I think if the FAA worked out these issues among the medical community and themselves and came up with more specific guidelines than just trying to find a way to disqualify anybody who is not, as we mentioned in the first episode, the magazine picture of an astronaut from 1962, then that would go a long way toward uh, a better system, I think. I completely agree. My step two for a solution would be to not defer all of these medical questions to CAMI or the, um, the FAA's medical office, basically, because even a small inquiry takes six to nine months to be reviewed. It takes forever. What a solution would be is we already have what are called senior AMEs or aviation medical examiners who are experts in these fields. I believe the CAMI or the FAA should defer some control to the senior AMEs to be able to immediately approve or deny based on their expert level of knowledge in these subject areas. For example, I know a pilot who was accused of being suicidal by a disgruntled um, ex-wife, and it took him $15,000 and three years of constant evaluations and waiting to be approved to fly again, even though he was never never diagnosed with depression or anything else from his any of his doctors or therapists, anything. I believe if he should have gone to a senior AME and the FAA should have deferred control or deferred approval in these scenarios to these experts in the field and allow this process to move much quicker. There is a precedent. I mean, going back to our previous example, I mentioned before, that's how the engineering process basically works now. That's the process is you have a, uh, the acronym is DER. He is the designated engineering representative for a particular make and model of airplane. It's usually a guy who worked for the factory as an engineer at some point and is familiar with the original design. And that's the process is when you make the DER happy, the DER gives you the signature. And when the DER gives you the signature, then the home office at that point is going to be happy too. They defer to the DER to know what he's doing and sign off on it. And when he's okay, they're okay. So there is a precedent in their own procedures already for this sort of thing. It just needs to be applied to medicals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see where the FA is coming from this. They Obviously, nobody wants to have a suicidal accident where somebody forces an airplane down. Um, like a couple of years ago, we thought the Atlas crash in the beginning, uh, that 767 crash in Houston, 
might have been a suicide crash, but it turns out it was an inappropriate reaction to what he felt was happening. It was just an inappropriate reaction. It wasn't a um, depression issue or a suicidal issue or anything like that. So I, I understand they're trying to prevent this from ever happening, but we have to have some pushback, I guess, from, from pilots in the community to have a more reasonable level of approval in these um, in these instances. Yeah, also that would um, work well in reducing the timeline of such a inquiry, let's say, because I can completely understand that if a pilot starts on a new medication, let's say, yes, you have to wait a little bit to see how that medication would affect the pilot, you know, like to give the body a chance to get used to it, basically, right? But that should not be, uh, I don't know, two years or one year. And most of that, I guess, it's bureaucracy rather than just a doctor signing off on the, you know, medical approval of things. Because if somebody has to wait six months, nine months, a year, just because they started on a new medication, something as simple as, I don't know, the most generic medication, let's say for depression, um, that pilot will not be able, will be grounded and probably paid only very little in the meantime, right? I mean... That cannot make things better for a person who is already uh, suffering from, let's say, mild depression. So putting somebody in the situation to where they have to choose of whether saying the truth or just not saying anything and trying to take care of their mental health on their own because they might be grounded. I don't think that's a constructive way of doing things. And yeah, that that's worth pointing out for our, I'm trying to keep an eye out for our, our mostly layman audience here, that... You know, pilot is a very broad term that does not accurately describe everybody. You know, in in Alex's case, I mean, he flies a 737 for a living. So he's, you know, he's not just random guy like me, like I said before, who has a pilot's license in my pocket that's basically worth nothing. So his company is invested in him. Uh, If you are somebody who just got hired by a regional airline, a couple of months ago, and this is your first professional flying job, it's going to be very different from somebody who has international heavy cargo experience. Absolutely. That is a, that's another big point. Um, like if I, I guess it's, I don't know if it's because they've invested in me. I think um, if I messed up or had some sort of a middle breakdown or something like that, I think that the company itself would rather just push me aside and bring someone else fresh in uh, to keep going. And in times of boom, you know, there's there's tons of pilots out there that they want to help. Obviously, it's a cycle goes up and down. Right now, we're in a, a shortage cycle. Um, but I think it's more of the unionization of pilots that really heavily protect them and create things like the HEMS program and other things like that to protect the pilots' livelihoods um, rather than the airlines investing a few thousand dollars in training for the pilot uh, in the simulator that causes them to want to keep them around. Um, I definitely think it's more for <laughs> the union. Yeah, and about mental health, a 2016 Harvard University survey found that 12.6% of the almost 2,000 airline pilots who completed the survey were clinically depressed, and 4% reported 
having suicidal thoughts within the past two weeks. Alex, would you say that the numbers are probably even higher now in 2022 after the pandemic? Of course, this is, a, you know, it's kind of a broad question because it's just a, an assumption. But for me, it seems that COVID couldn't have possibly made things better as it affected all industries and also the aviation industry, of course. I, I definitely think it's been higher. It's definitely since, since COVID, for sure. Going across the world, there have been different levels of reaction to the pandemic and different regulations that have happened. Um, there have been a lot of articles on Cathay Pacific, who are based in um, Hong Kong, for example. Every time they go through Hong Kong, it seems they have to go through a 14- to 21-day quarantine period in the state-run facility that, based on social media pictures, does not look like a place I want to stay at. And staying in a place like that alone for 14 to 21 days before flying again and not getting to go home and see my family, that does not seem too good for my mental health. I was going to say, for people, for the pilots who weren't depressed before, well, that's how you get them depressed if you put them all alone in a weird environment for <laughs> weeks on end, yeah, right? We've got to be able to tell each other people. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, we've got to be able to tell other people we're pilots, right? Yeah, it's... Would you say that the system discourages getting help and encourages pilots to simply lie or not be forthcoming about their mental health and suffer in silence at the risk of their own lives, but also at the risk of hundreds of passengers? Absolutely. I definitely think that there is at least some validity to that statement. If someone knows that that a medication they took in the past is going to disqualify for medical or something they're going through could be construed as a disqualifying event. Why would you voluntarily give that information during examination? You know, why why would you voluntarily give up your medical uh, and your livelihood for something that either you perceive as minor and transitory, or something you perceive as you have no way to recover from it? A lot of these people have gotten their licenses at. You know, they start start training as a pilot at 16 years old, and that's all they've done. And they have seemingly no other marketable skills in their mind. So, if they suddenly lose that medical, they have no more career for you know the, at least the foreseeable future. How are they going to provide for themselves and their families? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And. This seems to be a problem that's been lingering for too long, and not only in the U.S. You know, judging by the many cases of pilot suicide, mass murder that happened, this is obviously going on in all countries. Obviously, mental health does not discriminate. It can happen, and it does happen to anybody everywhere. Doesn't take into consideration, you know, gender, age, race, anything like that. So what would be a better approach from the aviation authorities here in the U.S., but also internationally pertaining to mental health issues in the aviation industry? How can we fix this culture of stigma and fear? Like I said, we have to start with going through Congress and pressuring the FAA to make significant changes in their in their medical process. Like I said, step one would be review the uh, medications and go through these with experts and make it more transparent what's acceptable and what's not as far as timelines and stuff like that and not make this an immediate disqualification. Or if you do, you know, part two would be we have to 
put more ownership onto our senior AMEs or our AMEs, our medical examiners, and uh, allow them to make more judgment calls and approvals rather than sending all these thousands of documents in to the FAA or CAMI. And a lot of times having to retain legal help, there's actually divisions of legal help just for this particular case to help you get through this process that takes months and months and months to, to even be seen by the CAMI uh, organization or the FAA. So that's, that's just unacceptable. We have to improve both of these processes. Before we go, I would like to say, Alex, thank you for being on our podcast and for sharing your story, including such personal details like the loss of your newborn baby. And that probably have not been easy for you to talk about. So thank you so, so much for all of that. And thank you for being with us and talking to us about mental health in aviation. Well, thank you for having me. It's a very important subject that I feel very strongly about. Alex, thank you very much uh, from me as well. As usual, guys, I would like to recommend three books this time. The first one is called This Is Your Captain Speaking, What You Should Know About Your Pilot's Mental Health. It was written by Rene O'Shaughnessy. The second book is called An Officer, Not a Gentleman, The Inspirational Journey of a Pioneering Female Fighter Pilot by Mandy Hickson. And the third book for today is called Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel, Questions, Answers and Reflections by Patrick Smith. And don't forget to subscribe to get our exclusive premium episodes. You can do that on dubiouspod.com or by clicking on the link in the episode notes. Also, if you like us, a five stars rating and maybe even a review if you have a moment would really be helpful. All right, see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks for having me. Bye.